Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. My apologies for getting this podcast out a week late, but I had the TCM Classic Film Festival and Real Science 2.0 to cover. But thanks for your patience. I didn't want to skip either the TCM Classic Film Festival or the San Diego Natural History Museum's latest installment of Real Science. So I've combined these two fabulous events for this one podcast. First, the TCM Classic Film Festival. The 2018 festival served up another fantastic year of classic cinema and amazing guests. I'll have a full wrap-up on my Cinema Junkie blog next week, but here are a few highlights. I got to see 16 films and one presentation on trailblazing women animators in four days. One film was on nitrate, most were on 35mm, and all were spectacular. The festival takes great care in making sure they show the films in the best way possible. Sometimes that means showing it in the volatile format of nitrate that could spontaneously combust at any moment. Other times it means it's a newly struck print or an archival print from a studio. And other times it's a new digital restoration. Some of the films are well known, like The Producers or George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, while others, like The World's Greatest Sinner, is not available in any format, so only a small cult following that saw it in theaters or on VHS know about it. The festival is a mecca for film lovers, and the care and presentation is well matched by the selection of people to introduce and give context to the films. TCM Noir Alley host Eddie Muller introduced the boxing noir, The Setup, and had poet Malcolm Mays read the poem that inspired the film, a poem about a black fighter. Ladies and gentlemen, fighting, rapping, poetizing, out of the red corner from Los Angeles, California, the pride of South Central, (laughs) Malcolm Mays. But his skin was brown and he never got a chance at the middleweight crown. Mean as a panther, crafty as a fox, he would hit like a mule and he knew how to box. A dark skinned jinx with eyes like a lynx, a heart like a lion and a face like a sphinx. Battered, flat, massive, grim, always impassive. He was of supple build, graceful, trim, heavy above with legs slim, compact, neat. Light as a cat on his feet. His neck was solid, his arms were long, his bones were heavy and his hands were strong. And whenever he moved, you could see the light. Muscles under his skin, right. He was slick, he was quick, and each movement was like a trick. Inside the ropes, he moved away. This is what we gonna do. He got you nervous, you never knew. Just what the hell he was gonna do. But he knew all about you. You leave with your left. You hit the nap. You throw it in with your right. His shoulder was there. Always an elbow, a wrist, a mint. He knew what was coming before you hit. He slipped what he couldn't block. He, his blows were timed like a clock. He'd warm up slow. He'd let you go for maybe a couple of rounds or so, but then he'd start. One left, one right. And you'd wonder who told you that you could fight. <laughs> Clinch, try and do it. It was over before you knew it. He'd carve you up like a leg of mutton and drop you flat with a sock on the button. 
I mean, he fought all comers. And he reached his prime. And he stayed there waiting, marking his time. Now was his chance for the title, or never. Each month was vital. When you get that far, you either click, or you hit the skids and you go down quick. His, aunt, his manager's way. They did what they could. They skied, they willed. But it did no good. The month slid by, the title hung high, no pansies need apply. Some of the sporting writers, well, they tried to throw their weight on Pansy's side. They waxed sarcastic, biting drastic on the subject of chance that won the crown, and after they got it, then lay down? Come on, take a sniff at Pansy's glove. What was the champ so scared of? No box office attraction? Hell, we wanted action. But then, sudden disaster. A final hope blaster, the brass knuckled hand of the law, hung a hot one on Pansy's jaw. Dissection of his private life revealed that he had an extra life. And three squatting brats living like caveats. Not guilty, Pansy pled. Guilty, the jury said. I mean, elections were coming, the judge was firm. Pansy went up for a five year term. Time out, 10 years passed. Fighting bodies have gone to grass. Some lie on the grass, rotten, even with their names have been forgotten. Fresh blood, new hopes, inside the old ropes. Kids that went their short pants 10 years back get their chance, giving, taking. All champions in the making. A fighter's life is short and best. No time to waste, no time to rest. The spotlight shifts. The clock ticks fast. All youth becomes old age at last. All fighters weaken, all fighters crack. All fighters go, and they, well, they never come back. Well, so it goes. Time hits the hardest blows. Thank you guys so much. Then there were celebrities who came not to promote their own films, but to show their love for films made by others. John Carpenter, who pretty much refuses to talk about his own films these days, presented Howard Hawks' pre-code sensation, Scarface. Uh, Turner Classic Movies has described the movie well in your program. It's perfect, so I'm just going to add a few tidbits tonight. This is based on the life of Al Capone. Obviously, Al Capone had a scar. So does Paul Muni, who plays the title role. Ben Hecht wrote the screenplay. Ben Hecht was a newspaper man. He was a newspaper man in Chicago during the bad old days. So they would put out photographs in the newspaper and they put X's where the bodies were. So Howard Hawks decided, let's put X's in our scenes. So X's, you'll see them. You can try to find them. I, I challenge you to find every X. They're in the scene where people have been killed or about to be killed. They are used for foreboding. Scene where Boris Karloff is in, there's an X over him. Shows you what's gonna happen to him. He is killed on a bowling alley and he uh, X's a strike. But there's the most incredible X. It's a scene where Paul Muni comes to the door and, and talks to George Raft. It's an X on each guy, it's a double cross. So, let me see if you can find all these. You'll be cool if you can. Okay. The opening shot is a three and a half minute single take, uninterrupted. Now, for the time this was shot, that is amazing. They didn't have the technology we have today. 
They didn't have the technology that uh, Martin Square says he had in Goodfellas, or that I had in Halloween. They had these big giant cameras. So it's a, it's a feat to do this shot. Paul Muni's sister in this movie is played by Anne Dvorak. And there's a lot of incest that's suggested, kind of like the Borgias. Uh, also, she gives a modern performance as an actress. She's just in tremendous. Also, she was Howard Hawks's mistress at the time, so maybe that's has something to do with the performance. I don't know. <laughs> Guys, here you go. Scarface. It's dark. It's brutal. It's blackly funny. Please enjoy. TCM Film Festival ended on Sunday, and I've had the blues ever since. Fortunately, the San Diego Natural History Museum kicks off their Real Science Season 2 this week to help lift me out of my depression. Real Science pairs an actual scientist with a film so that science fact and science fiction can meet. The museum's purpose in doing this is to find new ways to engage audiences in conversations about science. Pop culture proves to be a brilliant entry point for this. Films such as Back to the Future and The Matrix can make science feel less threatening and more accessible. And then add in a real scientist to point out what the films get right or wrong, and suddenly people are painlessly learning things. The films in the Real Science program screen on Fridays here in San Diego. But with this podcast, you can enjoy the scientific insights of the four scientists from anywhere. And you can seek out these films on your own. The scientists will also discuss their particular fields of research and expertise for some insights into what real scientists do. We also talk about other films that you might want to seek out. But if you are in San Diego, I urge you to go see the films so you can actually talk to these scientists in person. First up is Michael Wall, Curator of Entomology and Vice President of Science and Conservation at the San Diego Natural History Museum. This is his second year with Real Science, and he also hosts film series where he does a kind of Mystery Science 3000 take on films and holds running commentaries about the accuracy of the science in films such as Them and Wasp Woman. Wall presents the 1974 film Phase 4, the only film directed by graphic designer Saul Bass. Michael Murphy plays a scientist who is dealing with the ramifications of an unknown cosmic event. That spring, we were all watching the events in space and wondering what the final effect would be. Astronomers argued over theory, while engineers got pretty excited about variables in magnetic fields. Mystics predicted earthquakes and the end of life as we knew it. When the effect came, it was almost unnoticed because it happened to such a small and insignificant form of life. One biologist, an Englishman, Ernest Hubbs, saw something, got nervous, and started investigating. While I was playing around with number theory at the university, Hubbs was already onto something. Ordinary ants of different species were doing things ants don't do. Meeting, communicating, apparently making decisions. By summer, the rest of the world had moved on to other things. But Hubs kept making notes, 
while the thread grew. Michael, this is the second time the Natural History Museum has decided to do this real science program. So this is R-E-A-L scientists, real scientists, talking about R-E-E-L science, real science, in films. So how did that first series go and what did you kind of learn from that in terms of how to interact with the public in these films? Yeah, so we did the first series in early 2017, and we were looking for ways to engage with different audiences at the San Diego Natural History Museum and also to find other community partners to partner up with to sort of get out in the community a little bit more. So we partnered up with the Digital Gym and launched this series, and we were kind of just doing it on a prayer, and it ended up being really successful. We had a lot of positive feedback I think people really enjoyed the getting to interact with scientists, both, you know, sort of before and after the events, but also just hearing people's takes on these really wild cult sci-fi movies. Well, and what's interesting, too, is as a museum, you might think that you guys would have gone for documentaries or very kind of scientific films, films that didn't have questionable science in them. But your approach was to go with pop culture films, films that people would probably know, probably have some sort of connection with, and approach science through that route. One of the things the museum's in the business of is education, right? And like the best way to educate something, someone about something, is to sort of grab onto something that they're already familiar with and then stretch it out to something that they're unfamiliar with. And so that's what the experiment was. And, you know, as scientists, we have to experiment. So we did it uh, last year, and we did four different films, and and the data came in, and we were hugely successful. (laughs) So for this program, each scientist gets to pick a film they want to talk about. Now, last year, you picked Flash Gordon which was a great, was a lot of fun. So now you're moving on to something very different in tone and quality, which is phase four. So remind people what phase four is. (laughs) Most people probably haven't seen phase four. It's a sci-fi movie. I think it was released in 1974. And it's about ants. And it has the feel, particularly when you look at the movie poster for it, It has the feel of a creature feature that, you know, oh, ants are going to invade the world and kill a whole bunch of humans. And that's somewhat the premise of it. But it also has this really weird art house feel to it. It's very contemplative. It kind of reminds me at some levels of 2001 A Space Odyssey. In the next few moments, we will try to give you an impression of a new kind of film experience. If your curiosity is aroused, you are ready for phase four. I believe that they'll move rather quickly into desert areas, taking over the countryside first, then laying siege to towns and cities. Do you know our plans, our strengths, our weaknesses? Why don't they kill us? What do they want? How do you fight a force that knows what your next move will be before you think of it? So what is your approach that you're going to take to it in terms of how you're going to kind of dissect the science of this film? Right. Well, it's interesting because the, the, the movie is about scientists. The, the two main characters in the movie are scientists. One of them 
I think is like a more of how can we kill ants kind of scientist. And the other one is uh, into communication with animals. And so he had, it says that the, in the premise of it at the beginning, you find out that he had previously worked with orca whales, um, trying to communicate with orca whales. And so there is science within it, and particularly about trying to communicate with animals. And so what I, my approach is going to be is to talk a little bit about how ants actually communicate with one another and how they sort of spin off of that in this movie. Little sons of bitches. <laughs> no, no, no. They're not individuals. They're individual cells, tiny, functioning parts of the whole. Think of the society, James, with perfect harmony, perfect altruism and self-sacrifice, perfect division of labor, organized for preordained roles. Think of the building of elaborate and complex structures according to plans that they know nothing of and yet execute perfectly. Think of their ability to evolve and adapt in ways that are so beautiful and still so unknown and all contained in one simple form so defenseless in the individual so powerful in the mass now entomology is your specialty ants have appeared in a number of science fiction films, what do you think it, about ants makes them appealing to science fiction to use them? It, it, I think definitely it is the the mob nature of them, the sort of single mind mob. It's kind of at some level, it's the same reason why I think we find zombies appealing, because they seem to be this mindless mass, but they also it can at least in some movies move in concert with one another. And so this idea of a, a mindless horde, uh, I think, is inherently sort of frightening. And it also, you know, it oftentimes symbolizes, I think, in sci-fi movies, and particularly actually in Phase 4, the way in which we often paint our enemies. So that, like, during the Vietnam War, that communists are a mindless mob in some sort of way. And so... It springs off of that sort of fear of that the commune is going to take down democracy, you know. <laughs> Do ants get a bad rap in science fiction films, or is science fiction kind of tapping into something about them that is accurate in some way? Uh, you know, in this film in particular, well, I mean, I think obviously they get a bad rap, right? You know. <laughs> <laughs> because there are plenty of like ant invasion movies where they're like you know seem to be acting with some sort of vengeance in some sort of way you know where we're projecting these human emotions of revenge upon them or or that they're inherently evil in some sort of way and but where they where this film in particular is really accurate is well, actually, in the cinematography of it, they got a wildlife photographer to do the filming of the ants. And it's some of the best, actually, footage I've seen of ants in motion. <laughs> and the amazing thing about it is that they, they set up these set pieces for these ants to crawl through. And I can't imagine, like, the countless amount of hours. When you see some of these scenes 
how they got these ants to do some of these things. I mean, it's almost like they're trained animals. And uh, it's pretty, pretty crazy and really awesome. I understand that this is a film you haven't revisited since you were young. So how has this film kind of changed for you? And going back to it and seeing it again, what did you think of it? Yeah, I, I was telling my wife that the last time I saw this movie, I think I was probably about eight years old and, you know, was probably sitting on like the plush carpet in our den, you know, watching it on uh, on, a, on a tube TV. And I remember at the time being like, wow, this is really weird, you know, and but but just it was another sort of it probably came on on a Saturday during a creature feature. I often watch those on the weekends and uh, we were rewatching it the other night. And as an entomologist, I was really appreciating the the cinematography of the ants. And in particular, there is, you know, one ant that is a major character, <laughs> as weird as that sounds. And they do, I thought, my wife didn't quite agree with me as much as I thought, but they do a really good job of doing a portrait of an ant, like actually giving the, the ant some personality. Like the ants do feel like actors uh, in this, which is a really very unusual to see. They're props, they're scary things in a bunch of like your standard operating sci-fi movies. But in this, like there's some emotional resonance that uh, <laughs> at least I felt, and I think it probably goes, goes back to my background as an entomologist, you know. But uh, I really enjoyed that part of the movie of it. And, and it was interesting because it is a very contemplative movie. It's not high action, uh, though there are plenty of action scenes in it. But it's, non, it's not nonstop scare, jump scares and high action. And, and it was interesting to think about it afterwards. Like, okay, so what was the point of that? It made, it made you think, you know. <laughs> Do you think that film in any way laid a foundation for you becoming an entomologist? <laughs> Boy, that would be uh, that would be an amazing deep cut if I like uh, you know went to uh, uh, went to counseling and they pulled that out of my memory. Um, but you know, I certainly think that science fiction in general contributed to my my path, my professional path. That I was always fascinated with science fiction from a very early age, and I think that like imagining the possibilities is part of what science is about. In terms of all these ant films that there are, is this one of your favorites, or are there some others that you'd want to mention? Well, I mean, the classic ant film is Them, and that's, of course, the giant the giant ant film from the 50s. It was kind of a, one of the uh, results of nuclear testing in the Arizona desert. Ants got really big. By direction of the President of the United States, stay in your homes, I repeat. Stay in your homes. Your personal safety, the safety of the entire city, depends upon your full cooperation with the military authorities. Yes, cities, nations, even civilization itself, threatened with annihilation, because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. For born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous, there is no word to describe them. That one is probably my favorite just because it is, it's, it's just has all, it hits all the right notes for me in terms of a creature feature and it has to do with entomology, it has to do with insects. 
But I would say, like, I, I, I do quite like this film. It's weird. I'm not gonna, like, <laughs> I'm not gonna mince any words about it. It's really weird, but I really appreciate the portrait that they paint of ants in this film. And the way that it sort of makes at least me think about ants um, in a different way. Looking back on it, it seems very much like of the 70s in terms of that kind of maybe you drop a little acid and think about something in detail and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is you can totally see plenty of people smoking a, smoking some <laughs> reefer, dropping acid and watching this movie and having their minds blown kind of thing because it is it definitely hits all those tones there's some psychedelic ish sequences in it some really visually like crazy sequences particularly the micro photography of the ants there's a couple scenes that are really uh wonky with that and then also the soundtrack for it is this kind of like really stark synth kind of like bow, bow, bow. You know, and so all of it put together totally has that feel of the 70s. And it also has a bit of that kind of political consciousness element that was really popular in those films. Yeah, absolutely. The consensus is that it is sort of a commentary on the Vietnam War at some level, that the ants represent the the mindless horde of of the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, and that and that science is trying to like provide an answer for defeating the mindless whore. There, there, there's a scene in it that is very symbolic of the use of napalm. So uh, there, there's undoubtedly a, um, a political message behind it as well. By showing this, what are you hoping to kind of connect with audiences, or, or you know, what kind of a point do you want to try and make or bring out with this film? Yeah, well, again, I keep harping on uh, how impressed I am with the the footage of the ants in this. And again, to me, this film gives ants personality. And I do, like, when I'm trying to do education about the work that I do, I always say that the species of the world are a cast of characters and they're performing the biggest play on earth kind of thing. And that telling the stories of nature and making people feel familiar and feel like that they have a connection in some way with nature is a path to conservation at some level. And so I think this movie does a really good job of personifying ants, you know, and and some people might go, yeah, it personified them as evil, you know. <laughs> but I think other people will look at it and, and, and make a connection somewhat with ants. And if in my presentation at the beginning of it where I'm sort of contextualizing the movie and contextualizing ant communication, I can sort of nudge that over the top, then I think I'll have achieved my goal. Insects do seem to be very popular in science fiction. Do insects have like different personalities that attract them in different ways to science fiction writers? Because ants seem to be used, like you see giant ants in in a number of films, but like something like a tarantula always seems to be popular, not necessarily in science fiction only, but it's like, it's big, it's furry, it's kind of scary, and people seem to turn to that. But are, do bugs have like certain personality types that lead them in different ways to science fiction? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think if you just think in your mind through the different groups of insects, you, you're automatically going to have some sort of like visceral reaction, and it could be in a positive way. Like generally when people think about butterflies, they go, oh, (laughs) butterflies, you know, kind of thing. But when people think about roaches or they think about like maggots or flies, you know, they have another reaction. And spiders are one that 
I mean, it's, well, there's a movie all about arachnophobia, right? <laughs> you know, um, it's well acknowledged that that is something that causes a great deal of fear in people. So get the biggest one you can and put it on somebody's back and have them like slowly turn around and, you know, uh, you're going to get a, a jump scare, at least out of some segment of the audience that's arachnophobic. But um, it is interesting to think about uh, the, you know, when do, when do you see sort of insects painted in a positive light within film? And I can't really think of too many other than, you know, maybe within the world of Pokemon. You know, there's plenty of insect-related characters that are sweet. Flutter by, you know. Um, so, but yeah, generally the reaction is either that they're associated with disease and, and vermin in some sort of way or they're um they're venomous and they're going to kill you so giant wasps or attack of the killer bees type stuff or this idea of this sort of mindless horde well i guess you can go to japan for mothra yeah (laughs) totally mothra saves the day (laughs) but it seems like you mentioned uh, wasps and bees but it seems like these the ability of these tiny, tiny things to hold venom that could potentially kill you is something that ignites imagination. Sure, yeah. And, you know, that again, it goes to the strength in numbers kind of thing because a sting of one individual normal-sized ant is certainly not dangerous to most people unless they're allergic to them. But if you get mobbed by honeybees or, you know, in, in some, I'm not sure that I've ever heard of uh, death by mass ant envenomation, but it, it's, it's probably possible, then, you know, it becomes an issue. So this, again, I think this idea of the mindless horde, n- not just mindless, but it's got weapons, you know, uh, is, is pretty frightening. I have to confess that at one point in my life, I was interested in going into zoology and uh, interested in going. My grandfather had worked in Africa, and I thought, oh, like it'd be great to work with wildlife preserves. And then someone pointed out there were these six-inch goliath beetles in Africa. And for some reason, insects have that power to kind of make you go like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, that's, it's interesting because like th- there's where my hardwiring w- is wrong. <laughs> Because there are very few insects, or and in fact, I can't think of insects that make me go ooh. Like the one, the one sort of arthropod that creeps me out are are centipedes. Like giant centipedes uh, creep me out because they're really dang fast and they are venomous. And that there's something about them that's creepy to me. But yeah, it's without a doubt, you know, and the bigger they are, the the more ooey they are. But, you know, also the more fascinating they are, because in our collection here at the museum, we've got a few education drawers that we pull out when we're giving people behind the scenes tours and stuff like that. And um, we've got one drawer that I call the wow drawer. And that's because that's the reaction I get when I pull it out of the cabinet. And what's it filled with? It's filled with a lot of big beetles and big, you know, it's the biggest and the best kind of thing. If somebody saw that, like, on their shoulder when they were walking through the rainforest, then, yeah, their their reaction would probably be, ooh, gross. But when you get a chance to sort of reflect on, on them when they're safely dead and pinned <laughs> behind glass, you know, then it's, wow, awesome, you know. I, and I just feel like that all the time, like every time I see them. <laughs> well, I have to say, one of the first times I had met you, I was here with a camera person, and a scorpion 
fell on the ground and we're we're kind of going like well that's it's not dangerous right and you're going like oh don't worry about it and and our my camera person was like it like it, it can't kill you or anything and you're like oh no don't worry it's not lethal or anything <laughs> right. it would hurt yeah yeah i remember that i, I think i remember like right because i had it in a container and i had some long forceps and i yes. was pulling it out with and like as i was pulling it out she was freaking out and and i said oh don't worry i won't drop it and then of course i dropped it so it was pretty bad and you were completely unperturbed by that <laughs> i'll catch him yeah yeah. Talk a little bit about what led you into entomology. What was it about bugs in particular that fascinated you? I'm interested in, uh, in this actually goes back to something I said earlier about like nature being a play in which we've got all these cast of characters. And what, and I don't know why this interests me, it just inherently interests me, but I'm interested in, in the way organisms interact with one another. So I started off in botany, actually, when I was an uh, undergraduate, and I started getting interested in the way other things interact with plants. So how the things that eat plants, the things that pollinate plants, and the things that disperse the seeds of plants. And that just automatically leads you down the road to getting more interested in insects. And about that same time, my wife was an undergraduate in entomology, and she was taking a general entomology class. And... She was going up to study one night, and I, like a puppy dog, followed her up there to study with her. And there were these uh, samples that they had been extracting all the little tiny invertebrates out of leaf litter from a forest. And while she was studying, I was just getting these samples and putting them underneath the microscope and looking at this, like, sort of soup of insects in a Petri dish and ethanol. And that was totally what, like, that that night, it really, it was, it was just so fascinating to see these things that looked like little grits of dirt and then to realize, oh, wow, those have legs. And, like, the the morphological diversity in something that is so small you wouldn't even recognize it to be living is amazing when you get it underneath the microscope. And that's what I'd love to do. I just like, I mean, I, if I could, you know, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would, I would still continue to do entomology, but I would just sit in front of a microscope and look at little tiny things. <laughs> so have we discovered all the insects that exist? We have not, by a long shot, discovered all the insects that exist. So right now there's about 1.1 million described species of insects. And the most conservative estimate is that there's at least 4 million. And so that means there's, you know, three times as many left to discover than what's already been discovered. And there's some estimates that are even higher than that. And really where a lot of the diversity lies that we haven't discovered goes in back and turns back around into sci-fi again is that there are a lot of parasitic wasps and we know there are already a lot of parasitic wasps, but what's acknowledged to be sort of the biggest group of insects is beetles. So like one one out of every five animals of described species of animals is a beetle. And I, th- I can't remember what the total number of them is. It's somewhere around, let's, 300, let's say it's 350,000. Well, these parasitic wasps are, can be highly specialized so that they only parasitize, say, one species mm-hmm. of beetle. 
And then within that, they can be even more specialized where there might be one parasitic wasp that only parasitizes the eggs of the beetle and another one that parasitizes the larvae of the beetle and another that parasitizes the adult of the beetle. And then there's parasitic wasps that parasitize the parasitic wasps, you know? And so you can see how the numbers just like explode exponentially. And that's where um, a lot of folks think that, that, that there's just a huge chunk of undiscovered diversity is in these parasitic wasps. People are readily aware of the fact that we may not know everything about space, that right. there's all this stuff out there that we haven't seen and can't discover. And then to think that, like, in a cup full of dirt, there might still be things that we don't know about. Yeah, no, and that's the thing that, I, I mean, you know, I always say I've got good job security. Like, there's <laughs> there's plenty to keep us busy. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of corporations hiring. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of work to do, but nobody hiring. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the you know, it's it's often a rant that you hear amongst biodiversity scientists, people who study the living world, that like, oh, we don't get as much money as NASA, you know, kind of thing. You know, and it's true. There's a lot that remains to be discovered here, and and we don't know a large percentage of what's going on on our own planet. Well, what you need to do is you need to make a science fiction film about how a cup of dirt with a few undiscovered creatures in it ends up, like, taking over the planet. <laughs> right, yeah. Make big button, big big dollars on uh, box office and then uh, channel it into science. Or, or just terrify people to the point that they start demanding, we need more science on those things that we don't know about. <laughs> totally, yeah. Scare tactics. Yeah. But why, for people who may not be aware of all this. Yeah. Uh, why is it important for us to kind of go through and catalog all these possible creatures that are out there? Going, again, going back into childhood, though this wasn't childhood. I think I was in college when, <laughs> <laughs> when, when I was watching Bill Nye the Science Guy on uh, afternoons. But he had this one demonstration that has stuck in my mind for a long time of a Jenga tower. Most people are mm -hmm. familiar with the game Jenga, right? And if you picture the world or an ecosystem like a Jenga tower and, you know, species go extinct, we, we know that we are driving species to extinction. We're in the middle of what they're calling the sixth, the sixth extinction. It's one of the largest extinction events in geological history. So we know species are going extinct. So you've got your Jenga tower, you've got your ecosystem composed of all these wooden blocks that are species and you start pulling out Jenga pieces. And there's typically in most ecosystems and within the earth enough redundancy built in that you can pull out some mm -hmm. animals can go extinct and the Jenga tower will stay upright kind of thing but eventually you pull out enough pieces and 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 the and the tower crumbles and the ecosystem start to to fail and we as humans are very dependent upon ecosystems we're dependent upon um you know obviously plants to uh generate oxygen for us the bees to pollinate our plants that we eat, the 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 bacteria and and all the things that are in the soil to filter our water to go back down into the aquifers and be clean. And so, you know, we've got to we should be very invested in understanding our world better so that um, we don't pull out too many Jenga pieces. And is it hard to get people kind of on the side of insects in the sense of? I mean, I think people completely side with the idea of, like, we got to make sure that pandas stay here because they're cute and cuddly looking or a jaguar or something like that. But to defend, we need to have roaches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is it a tough battle? 
yeah, it is definitively difficult to <laughs> defend insects in that context. So we call your jaguars and your pandas charismatic megafauna. Um, and that the, but I think of the entomological world is the charismatic microfauna. There's a lot of char charisma there. And again, this sort of goes back to the movie on why I really appreciate this movie is the cinematography, uh, you know, of, of painting a character of what it's like to be an ant. But at the same time, like you, I've never met a like three or four year old who isn't fascinated by insects. I mean, if if they're not, then it's very clearly then they've been taught, you know, from an early age to like ooh spiders, you know, kind of thing. And so we we I think hopefully we don't beat it out of children, but you know we 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 certainly drive it out of children at some age. This like where they become ooh gross, and maybe it's just the experience of actually seeing maggots in the trash can for the first time or roaches and stuff like that that teaches us. But at the same time, going back to our Jenga pieces, some of that charismatic megafauna is one species and. And we can pull that Jenga piece out and there's, and the tower may or may not fall, but it's, you know, definitive that, you know, plants are what keep us alive. They produce oxygen. <laughs> and then the, once you get past plants, sort of the next line of defense that we have is insects because the insects are doing all sorts of what we call ecosystem services. They're they're pollinating, they're degrading, they're eating, they're they're breaking down poop. If it weren't for insects, we'd be like up to our eyeballs in poop because like there's no other things that like break down poop, you know? <laughs> Even though it's a tough row to hoe, you know, I think there's a lot of compelling arguments to be made for why we should be much more invested in entomology. And it's just a matter of getting the word out. And that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> I guess it's also harder to kind of give human traits to insects as opposed to, you know, panda bear kind of sits up like a human yeah. or a gorilla looks very yeah. much like us, but it's hard to get that cockroach yeah. or that centipede to have that human. Yeah, no, without a doubt, vertebrates, You know, I think one of the, the main things vertebrates have going for them, most vertebrates, is that they have eyeballs and like, and that you can look into the eyes of a, particularly babies, you know, they got such big eyes relative to their skull size and stuff like that. So baby panda, baby, whatever, even like and vertebrates that people might find gross, like when they see them in baby form, they're typically like, oh, it's so cute. And invertebrates, they've got eyes, but they're compound eyes. I mean, it's so foreign to us. Like everything about invertebrates and arthropods in particular is just so foreign to us. It's really hard to identify with them. So do you have any plans for a future series in terms of doing anything different? Or are you going to keep with this approach? We'd like to continue to do real science, at least on an annual basis, uh, where, we'll, you know, it's a, it's a month of programming. But we are definitely always trying to figure out new approaches to engage with different audiences. My main goal as a, as a museum entomologist is to make people think, who might not normally think of themselves as being interested in a natural history museum, interested in a natural history museum. And so if they if they already sort of self-identify as, well, I'm not interested in a natural history museum, then that's a tough fight. That's a tough, you know, person to turn. And the best way that we can make them turn again is by finding things that are more relevant to their interests. And so 
pop culture is by its very name being popular <laughs> is a really good um, gateway or entry point for trying to educate people about the natural world. Well, I have to confess also that after meeting you, I looked at museums differently because as someone who was a parent and as a child whose parents took me to museums, I always thought of it as a place where you go and you look at exhibits. Yeah. And I never realized fully that you guys are a research place as well. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've got, I think our research staff is, we've got about 30 plus different re- research staff, technicians and all. 8 million specimens in our collections and uh, we're constantly publishing research and also um, sort of working with other agencies within Southern California and Baja California to provide the best, because we have all these specimens from all throughout history, try to provide the best sort of historical data we can in order to inform like species management and monitoring conservation. So Uh, Behind the scenes, there's a lot going on. And currently, you have an exhibit, which uh, I believe the tagline for it is Come Look in Our Drawers, which is you're bringing some stuff out from these kind of collections. Yeah, it's an exhibit called Unshelved, and and we have been using uh, our advertisements say, look what's in our drawers, which is uh, quasi-sexual harassment, possibly, (laughs) but... But yeah, it's it's stuff that is has been behind the scenes for an extended period of time or has never seen the light of day. It's a combination of research specimens and stuff that was used in exhibits a long time ago and people haven't seen. So for people who've been around San Diego for a long time, they'll they'll see like kind of old friends that they remember from previous days at the Natural History Museum. But then there's, they're also going to see a bunch of stuff they've never seen before. And what I really like about it is that the, the interpretation in it is actually very minimal. It's not like, there's not a huge story we're telling you other than, wow, this is amazing. And we want you to understand that we have collections. That's about the main message of it. And so because of that, just wanting to inspire people to think like, wow, this is amazing. It really is sort of the best of the best. It's like the, it's colorful, beautiful, weird, wild, big, small, you know, all, all the extremes are represented, you know. Well, I believe I interviewed one of your colleagues, Phil Unit, Mm -hmm. and I was talking to him about the specimens they have. He does small mammals and birds. And like, I had no real sense of how you can use these specimens for something. And he pointed out that through the measurement of the eggshells of pelicans, I think, they were able to determine how DDT was making those eggs thinner. And if they hadn't had that collection, there would be no reference point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the strength of having what we call them vouchers because they vouch for the existence of something in the past. So having these historical vouchers as opposed to like maybe somebody's field notes or somebody's photographs, right? We actually have the real deal. And because of that, we can look back into the past and we can reinterpret what other people have, you know, seen. But we can also do things like, I know I saw an article recently on some publication where they they went and actually they sort of swabbed the feathers of birds to get an understanding of historical pollution levels um, over time because, you know, the pollution gathers on the feathers of these birds. Uh, So there's all sorts of ways in which you might not normally think of collections being used, that they're being used to help us 
understand the past and sort of prognosticate about the future at some level. So if you could pick one bug to be the next star of a science fiction film, do you have a favorite that you would put out there? I, so Jerusalem crickets are these really weird, weird crickets that we have in Southern California and Northwestern Mexico. And they're, they're big. They can be about the size of a, of a man's thumb. They don't have any wings. They look like giant termites. And it's definitely one of the things that I get the most phone calls about at the Natural History Museum because, and I can generally sort of like, I sort of play this game of name that tune when people call and I can name it pretty quick because people will say like, well, one, they'll either say giant termite or this weird alien. I'm like, oh, yeah, you've got a Jerusalem cricket. And so not only do they look weird, but they've got this really horrific story of parasitism associated with them where these horsehair worms get inside of them and parasitize them. And it's this really insane story. But then on top of that, they communicate with one another through ultrasonic drumming. So they, they, unlike a lot of like crickets and grasshoppers, they don't make a sound that we can hear. Instead, they drum their abdomen against the ground and they send it like, you know, as a sound waves through the earth, like tremors through the earth kind of thing. And so I think a giant Jerusalem cricket story <laughs> would be pretty awesome. <laughs> what always comes to mind when I see them is they look naked. I mean, for an insect, that's an odd description, but they look, they're kind of flesh-toned, and they look like they are missing some layer. Yeah, and in Mexico, uh, at least in Baja, California, they call them Niños de la Tierra, so the children of the earth, because at some level, when you do look at them head on, they kind of have this, it, it, it feels like a humanoid alien, right? So it doesn't look like a you know, it doesn't look like a human skull so much, but it sort of looks like that stereotypical big four-headed, you know, alien skull. And they do totally look naked. That's a very good description. All right. When you mentioned that they communicate through rubbing their abdomens on the ground, part of me is thinking, like, how do you find these things out? <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. I mean, probably somebody, you know, observed them doing like, why is it shaking its abdomen up and down, you know, uh, and then, okay, well, let's start taking a look at that. I, I did when I was working on my PhD, one of the professors was working with a different group of insects that is on plants that does the same thing where it will shake its abdomen against the branch and communicate through ultrasonically through the through the branches. And they are species-specific calls. So, like, the male will drum his way in a way that only the female of his species will react to kind of thing. And I remember going into his lab, and he had a whole bunch of, like, little transparent party cups that he had a very thin film, like, stretched over the bottom of it. And the insect would be in the cup, and he'd have a little tiny wire sensor on the bottom of the film so that when the insect drummed onto this thin film, he could record the the song, you know, the ultrasonic song of this insect. It was pretty wild. All right. It is always fun talking to you about the films and about entomology. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for stopping by. That was Michael Wall, curator of entomology and vice president of science and conservation at the San Diego Natural History Museum. Next up is Bradley Wojtek, assistant professor of computational cognitive science and neuroscience at UC San Diego. He's also author of the book, Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep?, which I highly recommend. Wojtek will be presenting Christopher Nolan's Memento. Here's the trailer for the film. 
I guess I've already told you about my condition. Funny every time I see you. You don't remember where you've been or what you've just done. I can't make new memories. Everything just fades. What's the last thing you do remember? My wife. That's sweet. Dying. You really want to get this guy, don't you? My wife deserves vengeance. When you find this guy, what are you going to do? Kill him. Somebody's got to pay, Lenny. Somebody always pays. You have to be very careful. You wander around playing detective. Maybe you should start investigating yourself. This guy is so dangerous. He's going to kill me. Who is he? What do you want from me? I want my life back. I think someone's trying to get me to kill the wrong guy. You can question everything. You can never know anything for sure. There are things you know for sure. You can't trust him. Even if you get revenge, you're not going to remember it. You're not even going to know that it happened. Who did this to you? You did. You don't know who you are. Bradley, this is going to be your second time doing a real science talk. Last time you chose Altered States, and now you're doing Memento. What led you to choose Memento? Uh, you know, it's funny. Memento is one of those movies that I have actually used in talks a number of times because the main character, I don't have to do like a spoiler alert, the main character will just has memory problems. Uh, his memory span is, I think, only a couple of seconds long. And uh, that's a real thing that has happened in the history of neuroscience. There's a very famous case. Somebody had a brain surgery that removed both parts, left and right, and both sides of the brain of his hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that allows us to form new memories. And both of those had to be removed. Uh, and this is many decades ago that this happened. The man has since passed away, but he lived for decades without this. And he had a memory span of only 30 seconds to a minute. And then it was like a reset happened and he would forget everything up until that reset. And he could remember everything in his life from before that brain surgery. But after that, he only had a memory span of maybe a couple of minutes for, for the rest of his life. So it's a real actual neurological condition that has occurred uh, in a real person. Uh, Henry Malaison, we now know his name. He just went by HM for decades in the neuroscience literature. And so it's a very good way of teaching people about a very real neuroscientific topic, but using something that's kind of, well, Memento, I'm not going to say is a fun movie. It's a very good movie. Uh, and it's, uh, it's got its moments, of course, but uh, it's, you know, it's pretty dramatic and intense. But it's, it's an enjoyable movie that people can relate to. And what do you think of it in terms of how it used that in the narrative? Is it kind of, is it fairly accurate in kind of the way it depicts it? Or does it use it just as kind of a jumping off point for its narrative? It's absolutely a jumping off point. But it's hard to know if it's accurate. It's hard to even imagine what that would be like to only have a memory span of a couple of minutes, right? So I can't tell if it's accurate or not. But from everything I have read and heard about the researchers who worked with Henry Malaison, uh, HM, and then seeing Memento, it seems like it gives a pretty accurate depiction of what that might be like. Brenda Milner is the scientist that worked with, with uh, patient HM for so many years. And uh, she would see him, she saw him for decades multiple times a week uh, and she worked with this guy and every time she came into the room he would forget who she was and she had to reintroduce herself for decades like you know it's hard to imagine what that would be like and so uh, I think Memento uses that as uh, the fundamental conceit of the film to very good effect. You think I don't know my own wife? 
the fuck is wrong with you? Well, I guess I can only make you remember the things you want to be true. Like old Jimmy down there. He's not the right guy. He was to you. Come on, you got your revenge. Enjoy it while you still remember. What difference does it make whether he was your guy or not? It makes all the difference. Why? You're never gonna know. Yes, I will. No, you won't. I will. Somehow. I'll you know. won't remember. When it's done, I will know. It'll be different. Well, I thought so too. In fact, I was sure of it, but you didn't. That's right. The real John G. I helped you find him over a year ago. He's already dead. Don't lie to me anymore. Look, Lenny. I was the cop assigned to your wife's case. I believed you. I thought you deserved a chance for revenge. I'm the one that helped you find the other guy in your bathroom that night. The guy that cracked your skull and fucked your wife. We found him. You killed him. But you didn't remember. So I helped you. Start looking again. Looking for the guy you already killed. Oh, yeah? So who was he? Just some guy. I mean, does it even matter who? No reason, Lenny. No conspiracy, just bad fucking luck. A couple of junkies too strung out to realize your wife didn't live alone. But when you killed him, I, I was so convinced that you'd remember. But it didn't stick. Like, nothing ever sticks. Like, this won't stick. I took that picture. Just when you did it. Look how happy you are. I wanted to see that face again. Oh, gee, thanks. Fuck you. I gave you a reason to live, and you were more than happy to help. You don't want the truth. You make up your own truth, like your police file. It was complete when I gave it to you. Who took out the 12 pages? You, probably. No, it wasn't me. See, it was you. Why would I do that? To create a puzzle you could never solve? You know how many, how many towns, how many John G's or James G's? I mean, shit, Lenny, I'm a fucking John G. Your name's Teddy. My mother calls me Teddy. My name's John Edward Gamble. Cheer up. There's plenty of John G's for us to find. It also, in addition to having a character who can't remember, the filmmaker chooses to break up his narrative structure in such a way that it's also being told in reverse order. So... For the viewer, how is that kind of taxing their brain in a different way? That's what's great about movies like this, right? When a, when a movie is well-constructed like this, it, it not only forces you to try and take on the perspective of what must that be like for the character, but the structure of the movie being in reverse order, which isn't immediately apparent. Actually, you don't realize that for quite a long time, uh, that that is what's happening. That then sort of puts you in a weird headspace, right? It like forces you to take on the perspective, not just because you're trying to understand empathically an interesting character, but the very structure of the movie forces you into their perspective a little bit that's kind of confusing and is off-putting and you don't know what's happening. And so I think good filmmaking doesn't just, you know, it doesn't just tell you, it also makes you experience it too. And that's what I, that's one of the things I love about this movie. The character, because he's, cognizant of the fact that he is not able to remember things for long periods of time, tries multiple things to help him. So he tattoos himself with a lot of information, and he's also written himself notes. So is that something that a person who suffers some sort of memory issue, maybe it's Alzheimer's, maybe it's something like this, is there a sense that people like try to recognize that and help their own brains to kind of make up for those deficits? 
It, you know, uh, yeah, but it doesn't have to be even somebody that has some kind of like overt neurological condition, right? I think we all do that. So what's kind of funny is this movie takes place, it was, it was filmed and made uh, before the smartphone era. Right? Think about it, your smartphone now. I don't remember what I'm doing. Like, you know, later today, I don't remember what meetings I have. So I know that I'm not going to remember these kinds of things. And I, I'm not very good necessarily even at keeping like a, a, an appointment book because I forget to check the appointment book. So if I put all of my appointments in my phone as reminders, my phone will buzz and I'll look at my phone and be like, oh, that's right. I have a meeting. So even somebody who, I mean, maybe it's a little bit presumptuous of me to say that I'm neurologically intact, but <laughs> let's pretend that I am actually neurologically intact. Even somebody who is will still offload some of their day-to-day, you know, memories and, and chores to other devices in order to compensate, right? So, you know, there are certain people that I know who are uh, really bad at remembering people's names uh, or they have a hard time recognizing faces. And so everybody will use certain tricks like, oh, maybe they have a hard time recognizing somebody's name. So they have like a little song that they associate with the person or, you know, that we all do these kinds of tricks almost, right? So it's not just a neurological thing. But yes, in this movie, he absolutely does... He, he tries to compensate, right? He tries to, he tattoos himself with notes so that when he sort of blinks and comes back into awareness after his memory restarts, he looks down and he sees, what does that tattoo mean on my arm? And he reads it and he tries to reacquaint himself. You can imagine that, you know, it would, it, in a smartphone era, maybe he'd just have like, a, you know, a little video that he filmed for himself to remind himself of what his situation is that he watches every time his memory comes back or something. So tell people what kind of area of neuroscience is your specialty and, and what got you into that? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, so our brains have 86 billion with a B uh, neurons, brain cells, uh, and these are little tiny cells that are interconnected uh, through these wires that we call axons that aren't quite touching each other. And they send little chemicals that cause little sparks of activity in between them. Somehow in our brains, these 86 billion neurons are communicating with each other in this ridiculously noisy, biological, messy, electrochemical environment. And it works. I mean, it works enough that I can be having a conversation with you, right? Like that just, that's mind boggling to me. So my lab studies, how do these 86 billion neurons manage to actually talk to each other? Like what is the signals? What are the codes that they're using to communicate, right? And the, the, it, um, why do I study it? It's fundamentally, in my opinion, just a, a difficult, fascinating problem. It's like, it's like a caveman being given a computer and saying, how does it work? And, you know, uh, maybe after a couple of hundred years of poking at this one computer, they say, well, there's little sparks that go off, uh, but we don't know what programming languages are. We don't know anything about coding. We have to try and reverse engineer all of that. And that's what it feels like working with the brain. So if nothing else, I feel like I have job security because we're not going to figure it out in my lifetime. <laughs> Now, for this real science series, you are using a film, all the scientists in this are using films that are pop entertainment, mm -hmm. films that are easily accessible, not necessarily scientific films. How did kind of science fiction or pop entertainment play a role in you going into neuroscience? Were there films that kind of sparked your interest and said, like, oh, that's, that's an area that kind of I'm interested in exploring? Yeah, absolutely. Science fiction, comic books uh, have played a huge part in my early scientific growth, I should say, like as a teenager, right? I read, just growing up as a kid, a uh, bunch of science fiction books uh, and comic books. And I think back to uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation series and this whole idea that there is this group of, he called them psychohistorians that could quantify the trillions of people living in a galactic empire and predict the empire's decline. And then they know that's coming and then they try and figure out what they can do in order to shorten 
the duration that the galaxy is in its like you know upcoming dark ages through anticipating that it's going to happen and then planting seeds to make it shorten right now we would call that data science i guess right <laughs> but it's like the the idea that that's even a thing right like some science fiction author brilliant i mean not just some it's asimov right but this brilliant science fiction author came up with this entire idea and anticipated this idea of like large-scale uh, analysis of human interaction and behavior well before there was anything like a Facebook. Science fiction is great at that, right? It's pushing the boundaries of what could be possible. You look at the original Iron Man comics from the 1960s and the Iron Man suit was literally an iron suit that had an air conditioning and a microphone in it, right? Now Iron Man suits this like nanotechnology, little nanites that live in his bloodstream that he thinks about it and they form a suit around him. 50 years from now, are we going to think that sounds really trivial and trite, just like the air-conditioned suit with a speaker sounds to us right now? Who knows? But it's it's the people that are not limited by science reality, that are given the freedom to think about what could be possible. That's inspiring. And then the, the day-to-day drudgery of science, the actual research aspect of being a scientist, is slowly trying to push things forward to see if we can get to technologies that would make life a little bit easier and quality of life better and you know people happier right but you need that inspiration you need that big picture and i feel like science fiction and film and comics are fantastic for providing that little spark of inspiration and hope now i've spoken to you before because we have a common love for zombies (laughs) and you've spoken about some of your research and talk about science fiction one of the things that you talked about which i find fascinating and amazed that it can be done is you work with some people who for whatever reasons have their brain exposed Mm -hmm due to surgery or operation. And you get permission from them to do tests and research. So talk a little bit about that because that, you know, that feels like science fiction to me, but it's something that's readily done. Yeah, to be clear, that is totally unrelated to zombies. Yes, yes sorry. No, that was just the starting point of our friendship with yeah. zombies. No, no. So, so a couple of percent of the world's population has epilepsy, which is the disease that, that, a disease that causes seizures. And it's only like 1% to 3% of people have it. And for the vast majority of those people, those seizures are relatively well controlled by anti-epileptic drugs. So they take, you know, some medication every day. But for whatever reason, in some fraction of that fraction of people, uh, those anti-epileptic drugs just aren't doing it. And so in a fraction of those, the seizures are so severe that they might lose consciousness multiple times a day. Obviously, that's pretty debilitating for day-to-day living. And so for that fraction of a fraction of people, they will often choose to undergo a brain surgery to remove the part of the brain that is causing the seizures. Uh, and that's actually the UCSD uh, over at Thornton Hospital this is done. Professor, uh, professor and uh, neurosurgeon Sharona Benheim uh, is my colleague who actually does the surgeries. In order to do that, uh, none of the brain imaging methods we have are sufficient to identify where the seizures are coming from. That means that Unfortunately, the only way to figure out for sure where those seizures are coming from is to have a person undergo an operation where uh, electrodes, these recording devices, are implanted directly into the parts of the brain the team, the surgical team, thinks the seizures are coming from. And then they wait for a couple of days, a week, for the person to have enough seizures that they're confident they know where it's coming from. And then they remove all the electrodes and remove the part of the brain, and the vast majority of those people are seizure-free or at least significantly seizure-reduced so they can get on to having a more normal life. During that week or two while they're recording, we go in and ask them if they'd be willing to do our memory tests or something like that. 
because otherwise they're just hanging out in the epilepsy monitoring unit waiting to have seizures. So they're like reading books, watching TV, playing games, talking with their friends and family, just waiting. And so we, 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 we bug them for half an hour because their unfortunate situation provides an incredibly rare opportunity to study the human brain directly that we can't do. And what's amazing, the connection actually back to Memento, is uh, that person who I mentioned, uh, HM, the person who in the 1960s had that surgery where they removed his left and right hippocampus, the memory part of the brain that caused him to wake up no longer able to form new memories. This is precisely the reason he was undergoing that surgery is the surgical team in the 60s identified both his left and right hippocampus as causing his seizures. And so they removed both of those parts of the brain uh, and also probably other parts just in front of that called the amygdala. And he woke up unable to form new memories. And that was, they don't do that kind of surgery anymore. Um, they don't remove both sides anymore. They try and be more precise, but that was, that was why. And so it's actually for me personally, this movie, this idea of not forming new memories. I mean, I study memory. That's one of the, one of the systems that we study and how does the brain talk to itself? Uh, how do we form memories? Because our memories influence our perception in real time on a day-to-day basis, right? We perceive what we expect to perceive uh, is one way that we can sort of talk about it. And to me, that's fascinating. And so it's a, it's a wonderful tie-in not only to uh, my own research, but to the fundamentally strange history of neuroscience. Uh, a large part about what we know about how the brain works is by these unfortunate cases like uh, patient HM, who had a surgery that has, hasn't really ever been done since. But from his unfortunate experience, the field has learned a tremendous amount about how the brain works. Well, in your book, Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep, where you use zombies to help enlighten on neuroscience, you pointed out one thing that I thought was fascinating, which is that it was a doctor working with gladiator injuries that provided a foundation for some of neuroscience. Yeah, I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago in in ancient Rome. There is a physician named Galen, G-A-L-E-N, Several parts of the brain are named after him, or I should say like the brain circulatory system. He discovered uh, he was a physician to gladiators. And uh, gladiators are a group of people who had a lot of blunt force trauma to the head and also penetrating head wounds and stuff like that. And he was trying to keep them alive. And he he, he began to notice that uh, certain kinds of brain injury to certain parts of the brain would, would cause specific problems that were like reproducible. So like damage to, you know, the back of the brain might cause uh, visual impairments, for example. That's not exactly what he studied, but you get the idea. Uh, and so the foundational history of neuroscience is, is paved with all of these interesting cases. One of the reasons that we know about how the spinal cord carries sensory information into the body and commands from the brain to move our muscles is uh, by examining people from the 17 and 1800s who were injured in duels. So either the, uh, like a tiny little rapier, like a little sharp pointy sword, cut one part of their spinal cord or like a bullet incompletely penetrated part of their spinal cord. Physician noticed that there were systematic differences uh, or impairments, I should say, from those kinds of spinal cord injuries. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's morbid, but, you know, there's something... I don't know, something nice to know that should I ever have some kind of like, you know, traumatic brain injury or, or you know, physical trauma, that at least something maybe useful could come out of it, right? Uh, wow, this took a dark turn. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it, it's you know, I, I don't want to emphasize that part, right? Like, there is something really, really amazing out of that, right? It's like, 
you know, the world is messy and uh, there are unfortunate things, but it's nice to know that even out of unfortunate circumstances, something amazing can happen. Uh, I guess that's my attempt at turning that dark message into something more inspiring. <laughs> I mean, I think it's amazing because, you know, you, you don't necessarily think from something like that, like from gladiators, we yeah. might actually have a foundation of something really amazing for neuroscience. Yeah, you know, the whole history of science, not just neuroscience, is mm -hmm. filled with these little random accidents or, or events that, you know, lead to amazing discoveries, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what makes science fun. It's almost, it's, it's you know... Uh, the fact that these random accidents uh, can lead to something amazing is is one of the beauties of it, right? I think, what is what is a quote? It's not, uh, the best parts of science aren't the eureka I found at moments. It's the looking at something and going, huh, that's funny. Right? Like those really are the amazing things. It's like when you run an experiment and something defies your expectations and you go, huh, why is that? And like those are the beautiful moments of science when discovery can happen. The idea of the brain not functioning properly is probably one of the most horrific things you can imagine uh, happening to you. So that seems to be one of the attractions for science fiction or horror. And for me personally, like the thing I find most terrifying of all would be the idea of Alzheimer's. And that to me kind of pops up in zombies for me. It's this notion of like you no longer are yourself and you no longer kind of have control over what you're doing. But you study memory and stuff. So how do you see like some of those real fears translated into kind of pop fiction or uh, into science fiction? I mean, that's kind of like the, like, what, what is the heart of fiction and storytelling, right? Like what is it? It's, it's like human beings trying to grasp the idea of love and mortality, right? Like that's like the foundation for every tragedy and comedy and science fiction and horror piece just about, right? These certain kinds of like diseases uh, are one of those that many people, we just try not to think about, right? It's like too, too scary for us. Uh, to try and tackle on a day-to-day -day basis. You're really, like, I've got, I've got to, like, like, take my kids to, you know, baseball game and swimming classes, and I have to go shopping. I don't need to be, like, contemplating, you know, existential issues right now. Uh, but storytelling provides us with an outlet where it's more approachable. Uh, and I think, you know, you can take many different tactics to it. Horror is one, right? Because it can be horrifying to think about it. But, you know, there, like, even comedy, Right is a, is another perspective. You look at s certain. I'm trying to think of like medical comedies, right? Where like you do have this kind of perspective. Like uh, was the Robin Williams, the Patch Adams movie, mm -hmm. right? Or Scrubs, even, right? It's like you have this like existential issues that you're trying to deal with life and death, and some of it might be like memory loss and things like that. But you can instead of treating it as a horror perspective, you can also take the comedy perspective or the love perspective, the romance perspective, right? Fifty first dates. One of the characters, the romantic interest, uh, doesn't have a memory, just like in Memento, right? They don't have a memory span anymore. But that's a that's a romantic comedy movie of that topic, right? So you can take the same ideas and look at them from different perspectives. I think it's just all, everybody trying to deal with issues that are too complicated and storytelling and putting in a narrative around it is one of the ways that we deal with that. And in choosing Memento, what are you hoping that after people see the film and hear you talk about it, what are you hoping they might take away from this? When I chose the movie, one of the reasons I, I picked it was to try and get people to engage with the idea of just memory. Like, what, is, what role does memory and past experience play in who we are, right? Uh, you think about a movie like this where the guy 
Guy Pierce is constantly like reinventing himself by necessity every time he snaps back into reality. Uh, I don't know how to put it, right? Like his memory comes back. Do I lie to myself to be happy? In your case, Teddy. Yes, I will. What's constant there and what's what's malleable, right? Uh, and I think, to me, that's just an interesting question about like who we are. Like, we, we put so much weight on what we have done as shaping who we are. And so inherently what that means is like our memories, in some ways I think a lot of people think like our memories of our past are who we are, mm. right? Uh, without really considering that like at any given moment you can change some of that, right? It's like every moment is a new and a fresh. And uh, this in this movie that's taken to the extreme, like every moment he is like reborn every couple of minutes in, in that sense. And to me, that's just a fascinating idea. Well, and to me, like, one of the things that always scares me the most is the sense of loss of identity. Mm-hmm. And even in a comic form, it's always bothered me. There's a Heaven Can Wait where oh. Warren Beatty is this football star who dies and they take his body away too quickly and they put him in another body, mm-hmm. which is fine. Like, I don't mind the he's in a different body, but he's himself inside. But then at the end, they go like, oh, OK, we got this great new body for you. We're putting you into it. And now you no longer have the memory of anything of who you were. And like to me, even though there's was, was this light comedy, right. this yeah. notion of like now you don't have that set of memories anymore. Yeah, I mean, again, that's just like that's that's our struggle, right? <laughs> like, uh, and thankfully, most of us don't have to think about that on a day-to-day basis, right? But it's 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 uh, it's nice to engage that that aspect of who we are sometimes. I mean. Altered Carbon, uh, which is, uh, you know, one of Netflix's new hit shows. I mean, it's it's a uh, a great science fiction series, actually. I mean, I think there's a reason also that certain things like that where if people aren't familiar, Altered Carbon is this idea that uh, our consciousnesses can be transferred between bodies. And that allows some people to just live forever because Mm -hmm. they can constantly move their consciousness from one body to, uh, you know, a a younger clone of their own body. Like, these are, these are... Uh, intriguing and, you know, amazing and scary and all of those things that make us who we are, right? And I think that's why they're so popular is for this reason. It like engages that part of uh, our humanity that, you know, it's, it's fundamental. We all have to deal with it at some point. Uh, you know, maybe like science fiction is practice <laughs> in that sense of like getting comfortable with these like really heady ideas. Well, and it seems like the idea of memory is something that would be hard to research. Is, is that the case? Yeah, memory is really hard to research. So what we scientists will do is we try and like strip everything down to just like the barest core. So like if I'm studying memory, uh, I'm not asking you about your childhood experiences or anything. I have, you know, I might have you sitting in a room and I'll, I'll, you know, flash a couple of uh, images at you. Just like squares of different colors, for example, is one of the tests that we use. And you might see like a flash of six different colored squares on the screen for a tenth of a second. And then we make you wait a second or two seconds. And then we show the same number of squares that we just showed you before. And you have to tell me, did one of the squares change color? Yes or no? Right? That would be a way that we study memory is over that couple of seconds, what is happening in your brain that allows you to compare that first set of squares that you remember seeing to the next set of squares, right? So we take something really complicated like memory and we try and just like the very basic core of what might memory be. And is that really memory? It's a kind of memory. Is that really what we're getting at when we talk about like our sense of, you know, 
constructed idea of who we are over several decades of life? Mm, probably not, but it is a type of memory that we can study more cleanly and we have experimental control over. So, you know, baby steps, we'll get there. <laughs> and if you had any other films to recommend regarding memory or the area of neuroscience that you specialize in, are there any other films you would recommend to people to watch? Wow, that's a really good question. I haven't actually considered that one. You know, coming up in conversation just now, we talked about 50 First Dates was another one of those like memory loss sort of things. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind uh, about like selectively removing memories that we don't want anymore uh, is another very interesting one. Yeah, I mean, even more broadly, like Altered Carbon, right? Which is this idea of like transferring consciousness or memory from one body to the other. They treat that well, in the book, fantastically, and all, I think the show did a very good job, uh, you know, taking liberties with certain ideas also. That was another very good one. Uh, should I, you should give me homework. I would have been able I'm to, like, sorry. study ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I would recommend those movies. I think those are all pretty good in, in, in that sense of understanding or engaging with the idea of memory as being part of who we are. Although zombies don't come up in, in the film that you're doing, um, I feel like it's not fair to talk to you and not at least bring up zombies once. But I've noticed recently that the, the, a slight change in the zombie film is that we get more of these self-aware zombies yeah. with this sense of they're dead and they know it. And it's a slightly different take because we're now getting the perspective of inside the zombie head instead of the people terrified outside dealing with them. And I'm just wondering mm. if you feel that reflects anything that may be changing in neuroscience or just maybe the way that we're perceiving the world? I think, I think it's maybe just art uh, pushing, right? Uh, zombies as, zombies are a pop culture thing that aren't gonna go away apparently. There's only so much that can be done with them, right? And traditionally the zombie stories that have been told have been all told from the perspective of the survivors, mm -hmm. right? And so the idea that maybe there's an interesting story to be told about uh, zombies from the zombies perspective, I think that's just, like changing the art a little bit, right? It's trying to do something new with a genre that can maybe get kind of stale. What was what was the what was the one about the uh, what was the one that came out a couple uh, couple of years ago now? It was the romantic rom zom com, right? The guy. Oh yeah, warm bodies. Warm bodies, right? That was it. That was the one that like really started that new perspective. I think there weren't very many that took that perspective. I think before the warm bodies one, where the main character, one of the protagonists, was a zombie, right? Who started to fall in love. Yeah, I, I think I I don't know if it's reflecting anything like more broadly culture at large, but I definitely think it's. Uh, artists trying to do something novel and interesting with a existing medium that's getting a, maybe a little bit stale. All right, so I expect some more perspective from the zombie brain from you, and you can <laughs> do another book. Yeah, we should we should probably update that, right? There, like, what would that mean anyway? Yeah, <laughs> thanks. All right, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to you introducing uh, Memento. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. I'm always I always enjoy this kind of thing. So, yeah, look forward to it. That was Bradley Wojtek, Assistant Professor of Computational Cognitive Science and Neuroscience at UC San Diego. Next up is Daniel Sheehan, Physics Professor at University of San Diego. As with Wall and Wojtek, he's returning for a second year at Real Science. His film of choice is The Matrix. Here's the original trailer for the film. Whoa. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. 
What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Daniel, this is going to be the second time you partake in the Real Science film program. And to start with, I just wanted to ask you, what was it about science that initially sparked your interest and got you wanting to be a scientist? Well, I started thinking about it. Actually, I thought about it, and it kind of happened in a flash in third grade. I had um, a teacher named Mrs. Kenzie, and we were talking about uh, the planets at the time. And we got to Pluto, and Mrs. Kinsey um, just said rather matter-of-factly, um, um, scientists know there's no life on Pluto. And I was sitting there quietly. I'd been quiet up to that point in my whole student career. And suddenly it just kind of struck me as odd that she'd say that. And I, and I raised my hand and said, how do they know? They haven't been there. And she said, well, scientists know. And then just something snapped in me, and I realized, you know, no, they don't know. They haven't been there. And so I decided I was going to be a scientist at that point and figure it out myself and not believe anybody. <laughs> now, last year you presented Donnie Darko. And one of the things I thought was really fascinating was you talked a little bit about things that interested you. And you mentioned mm -hmm. something about how you used to, like, see faces of people and then they would either show up at your doorstep or die. So how did that <laughs> impact your science? Well, that came later. That came when I was... Um, um, in my career here, I mean, certainly I'd had those experiences earlier, but it became really uh, more urgent for me at that point because I had had this kind of feeling of mortal dread a couple of days before my youngest brother died in a, in a motorcycle accident. And at that point, it became really more important to me to try understanding what the, you know, the physical basis of this phenomenon was, which um, some people call precognition, but I think is a form of retrocausation. So... I'm interested in the whole issue of time, why it travels, why it goes forward rather than backward, and under what circumstances can it appear to go backwards. Now, for some people, the idea of physics and what a physicist does is a bit of a mystery. Mm -hmm. So is something about time travel and the way time flows, is that part of what physicists study? Some do. Uh, most don't. Most, most of what we do is a little more prosaic than that. But on the other hand, um, you know, things like space and time and order, these are the fundamental kinds of things that um, undergird everything else. So if you understand time, you understand an essential, essential feature of almost everything in the world. So this year, you are picking the film The Matrix, the first film in that trilogy. And what was it about this film that appealed to you to want to talk about? The Matrix is one of my favorite movies. I mean, in terms of science fiction, I, I would put it right up there with Blade Runner certainly, and 2001 in terms of, in terms of um, what it represents. And what makes it, I think, a great movie is that it, you can interpret it in many different ways. You can look at it from the, you know, the, you know, the pure um, action aspect of it. You can look at, look at it in terms of romantic interests between uh, um, Neo and Trinity. You can look at it in terms of basic physics. You, you can look at it very philosophically in terms of um, what is the nature of reality. There are all sorts of threads that are interwoven here, and I think because of that, it's, it's an interesting movie. Every time you see it, it's, you, you see something new in it. And out of all those threads, is there one that appealed to you in particular? Well, in, in seeing it most recently, I, I realized that the entire premise 
of the movie is about a basic misunderstanding about energy. Had it not had the robots who were trying to run the, run the world actually understood what conservation of energy was, there wouldn't be a movie. I mean, it's all based on their flawed understanding of that. Well, the premise of the movie comes up first, right at the beginning, so it's not a, a big mystery. So the, um, the movie is about uh, humanity being enslaved within a matrix, which is a, a computer simulation run by um, artificial intelligent robots, I guess, in the future. And um, it's based on the idea that the human beings need to be controlled, but, they are, they're, but they're also being basically harvested for energy. And they're compared to like a dry cell battery. And, and the whole discussion of energy there is, is pretty poor to begin with. But the idea that you'd want to somehow extract energy from human beings from their bioenergy or electricity is completely dumb or flawed because you could get more energy out of simply using the food that you're giving them to keep them alive to get the primary energy out rather than having to use humans to do it. And so they, so in order to subjugate human beings, they have, they've invented an, an entire um, harvesting farm system for human beings and keep them subdued inside this computer program. But that's completely unnecessary if you actually understand how energy works and how you harvest it and use it. So um, once you throw that away, uh, the, ho the whole premise of the movie crumbles and there's nothing left. And so this is actually a parable um, or a cautionary tale about energy, which is understand your basic physics and you won't have problems with, with pesky human beings anymore. So you're saying that the aliens who came were not those super intelligent beings that we always worry about. <laughs> they, well, they didn't yeah. quite grasp what they needed to do. Well, you could say that. But on the other hand, this AI program was presumably um, developed by human beings in the first place, in which case they probably misprogrammed the computer in the first place, which is why we have the problem. So it's our own doing. <laughs> now, the way The Matrix kind of depicts this computer-created reality, uh, what do you think of that part of the film? In, in most movies, I mean, one of the primary flaws with most science fiction movies is that they don't adhere well to real science in mm -hmm. the sense. And if you look at, at The Matrix, it's, it's really no different. The best movie in, in history in terms of, at least in my opinion, in terms of basic science and getting the science right was 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. But Arthur C. Clarke was one of the guys behind that with Stanley Kubrick. And so in that entire movie, 2001, um, I think I only spotted maybe one or two physical flaws, and those were inadvertent and unavoidable. But aside from that, it's first, first class. This one um, um, breaks physical law both in the matrix where breaking physical law is, is part of the goal in order to you know, get around constraints that, that are placed on you. But even in the real world part of the matrix, you have basic violations of things like conservation of um, of momentum or angular or linear. And these kinds of things, for anyone who pays attention to it, really undercuts the movie. Um, it could be done better. I mean, in the matrix itself, if you want to break the laws of physics, that's fine because it's just a simulation. But on the other hand, in the real world, if you do that, um, if you actually started breaking physical laws of the basic nature, like energy, momentum, and so on, you, you, you're undercutting the nature of reality and you're going to pay for it dearly somewhere down the line. No, you've got these two kind of extremes. You talked about 2001 and The Matrix in terms of kind of films that respect real science and films that just kind of use it as a jumping off point. That's right. But do both of them work in a certain way to kind of ignite imaginations of people who go to see them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the weaknesses that The Matrix has in terms of its basic science, I think, are compensated for by its by its mind-bending psychological aspects. I mean, when I mean, what phys physicists are really after and scientists are really after is to understand the nature of reality or, um, or nature in general. What this actually cuts into, which 2001 doesn't necessarily do maybe as well, is to, to question 
what the nature of reality is. Are we living in a computer simulated world, for instance? There are respectable um, physicists who make the claim that the world as we see it is a simulation. And even people like the great John Wheeler, who was one of the great uh, relative, um, general relativists, um, experts on gravity and so on, um, mentor to Richard Feynman and so on, he, had, he used to have lots of nice aphorisms like, um, it's from bits, which is to say, it, the itness of things, the existence of things, come from their bitness or from information. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, information undergirds reality. And if you take that as a premise, then um, something like the Matrix makes more sense. And you might say that everything we experience in this world might be a simulation. I don't believe that, nor do I believe a lot of what information theorists tell us about it's from bits. I think that's just a catchy phrase, but it's, um, it's built on sand. Nonetheless, I think um, the fact that our world is so immersed in a kind of computer technology and a computer culture lends people to the, um, to the idea pretty easily that maybe even what we're doing outside our Game Boy and our video games is just another game being played by someone else. Now, we have a lot of technology around us today, which is why a film like The Matrix comes about. But this notion of what is real and what is the real world existed in literature and and dating way back. So how does that kind of play into this notion of science and reality, knowing that people were questioning this all from the beginning before we had all this technology? Well, I I think scientists need to recognize, um, particularly physicists, that what we're doing is basically revisiting ideas and concerns that go back to the ancient philosophers and ancient religions even. In my view, there I have certain definitions of, of physics and what physicists are, and my um, definition of physics is, a couple of them is, um, it's mathematics with meaning, um, it's uh, philosophy with um, mathematics, and uh, my own personal one is, a physicist is a second-rate philosopher doing third-rate mathematics. And I'm told by my friends over in mathematics that that's uh, kind of a generous assessment in terms of the math. (laughs) Well, that description really does kind of sum up the matrix in a lot of ways. Why so? Well, because the matrix is the science fiction film, but there is like this sense of philosophy behind it because you also get at some point the Hugo Weaving character, who is Mm -hmm. one of the agents of the matrix, kind of obsessed with very human ideas. Like he he doesn't understand why humans can't be happy in the matrix when it gave them like a a good view of the world. He's confused by why do humans seem to need like pain and problems. And so it's an interesting thing because it's within the science construct, but they're dealing with very kind of human emotions and Mm -hmm. vulnerabilities and frailties, which is not necessarily what you you know, think of. Well, this is uh, Agent Smith, as you're talking about, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is developing philosophical instincts, but he's supposed to be artificially intelligent. Mm -hmm. And if that's true and he's sentient, then I think that's inevitable to question your own existence and the meaning of it. Human beings are further along, and I think we realize that um, you need to have opposites. For for pleasure, you need pain. For for joy, you need despair and sorrow and and so on. And these things are, these these opposites give meaning to each other. and uh, I think the Matrix is a re- is a reflection of that, and um, saying that even if you're even in the computer world, in the pure pure realm of logic, maybe you eventually arri- arrive at emotion or arrive at, at try- or you're always trying to arrive at meaning. Um, I, I found seeing the movie again that there seems to be a lot of <clears throat> emphasis between or tension between um, uh, fate and free will. I mean, mm-hmm. you have um, you have Neo who 
um, likes to believe in, in his free will, and at the same time, he seems fated to be the one. And, and the oracle kind of leaves him hanging in the sense that she, you know, she tells him one thing, but actually leads him to his destiny. So um, that, the, uh, that Latin phrase over the door of the oracle, <clears throat> which says, know thyself, is, I think, really key. And, and, and Neo, was, his point, his, his journey was to find himself mm-hmm. in this digital realm. Smell good, don't they? Yeah. I'd ask you to sit down, but you're not going to anyway. And don't worry about the vase. What vase? That vase. I'm sorry. I said don't worry about it. I'll get one of my kids to fix it. How did you know? Oh, What's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? And, and so it's a question of when you make a prophecy, are you prophesying something that's going to happen or do you make it happen by prophesying it? That comes up, comes up again really mm-hmm. strongly in the sense that um, I think at the point where um, Neo is about to have his plug pulled by um, Cypher, you know, basically going to be executed by by being pulled pulled out of the um, being pulled out of the matrix. Um, Cipher says, um, um, "I am going to you know basically I'm going to kill you." Um, but if the prophecy were true, that would be impossible. And then he turns up and sees that um, um, one of one of the other guys on the ship suddenly zaps him with this energy beam and violates the laws of physics doing so. But that's okay. And what happens then is that. You have, a, you have the oracle, which is in the matrix, making a prophecy about something in the real world, which I think it kind of turns everything around here. You know, is it possible for a computer program to, to or a computer-generated uh, creature to make some prophecies that way? And that, so it, it, I think it, it, it was interesting to see that extension. And I think that's one of the reasons why the film's fun to see repeatedly, because you once you've seen it and hear everything that goes on and then you go back and you see it knowing those things are happening like it makes right. you have a different view of it well that's the way i am in most movies anyway I, when i when i first start a movie i don't pay much attention to what's going on and then and then later you start you know you start saying oh maybe someone said something about that so if you don't pay attention right from the very start of this movie you because the movie's laid out very quickly mm-hmm. then 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 you have to see it a second time and then you can see all the clues were in front of you you just didn't recognize them that's very that's pretty standard and last year when you did donnie darko that a number of notions come up because there is the notion of what's real, but also in that one, there's a sense of potential time travel as well that's altering the sense of reality. Uh, yeah. the I mean, I, in terms of Donnie Darko, it's much stronger in, in terms of that. In this, this movie, you have kind of lost time insofar as the Matrix is set up in the world of 1999. And and now they're lost in time somewhere in the future, maybe 200 years in the future, and they don't know even what year it is really. Well, in, in this one, the, 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 where the confusion arises is this parallel universe where you have two universes. You have what's called the real world, and then you have the digital world where most people live. And, the, and then you have the people in the real world trying to free the people in the digital world. And yet there are people in the digital world who probably really don't want to be in the real world. I mean, the, the character Cypher is a good example. He, he basically was a traitor, and he did that because he, would, he preferred irreality over reality, which is, which is an interesting choice. I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, 
You know what I realize? <sighs> Ignorance is bliss. Then we have a deal. I don't want to remember nothing. Nothing. You understand? And I want to be rich. You know, someone important. Like an actor. Whatever you want, Mr. Regan. But I'm, I'm not convinced that most people wouldn't prefer that as well. Whether they would prefer to live in a gilded cage uh, versus um, uh, uh, an impoverished um, open space, and I think uh, I'm, I'm so it kind of leaves you on the on a on a on a knife's edge of, of morality there too. If you are going to free all of these people, many, many or maybe even most of which do not want to be free, are you actually doing them a service? Is it moral to do that? More philosophy, less yeah. science in that. Yeah. <laughs> well, The Matrix is an, uh, a science fiction film that doesn't really present us with scientists at the core. Right. Uh, are there films where you feel scientists are well represented or ones where the depiction of scientists is just infuriating to you? Most of the time it's infuriating. Um, one of the things that bothers me about a lot of science movies is how easily they get their experiments done. You know, they, they, they have a bunch, they have a, you know, a ballpoint pen, a piece of gum, and a, and a piece of uh, lead pipe, and, they, and then by the next morning they have a cyclotron built or something like that. And it just doesn't work that way. Everything takes longer than you expect, and even, even if you have your best estimate of how long something's going to take, it's going to take pi times longer than that at least. It's just the way things are. Everything's harder than, you don't know how hard a problem is until you solve it. And usually it's a lot harder than you thought. But in terms of, of having good scientific method, I don't know, something like, uh, well, it, it would, it's nice to see when, when people try reasoning through their problems. So when, when you have, let's say, scientists who are, let's say, stranded somewhere like, like the Martian with um, um, Matt Damien, mm -hmm. um, for instance, that's, that's pretty fair in the sense that he's stuck, he's marooned, he has to use science to somehow uh, survive, and you can see him thinking his way through the problems. Mm -hmm. There are major scientific gaffes there, for instance, you know, the, that uh, the porthole he makes out of, that, out of duct tape and um, plastic, that won't hold, that won't work. You know, those kind of things are just are, are crazy, just don't work. And, you know, and some things are unavoidable, like the, like the gravity on Mars is you know, maybe a, th a third of that of Earth, and so things would fall differently. You don't see that that sort of thing either. But on the whole, I mean, seeing someone who's in a fix and has to use his wits in a scientific way is nice to see. And do you remember as a kid watching films that were about science that helped spur on your interest in science? I, I, I wouldn't say it is as much the, the f um, films, although we, cause we had a really kind of limited amount of TV when I was growing up at our house. We were rather strict, one hour a week. But on the other hand, the Apollo program, to me, was, um, was very inspirational. The, the uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin came out on the moon on my birthday, or the, or the day before my birth, my 10th birthday. And, and, and so I kind of frame my childhood in terms of that. I think a lot of people my age do. And what is it about science that keeps you interested? And what is it about it that makes you passionate about it? Well, it's everywhere, for one thing. It's, it's beautiful. It's logical. Um, it's challenging. It's the hardest thing I can do and be half decent at, I guess. 
so I enjoy the challenge of it. Um, I like the idea of being able to um, to explore and do things that that no one else has done and contribute to a repository, a, um, a body of knowledge that hopefully will last a long time. I don't have any illusions about uh, the fact that most of what we know now will probably be superseded by something else in the future, but what we're doing now is necessary to get there. So it's a, it's a journey. I enjoy my teaching, and I, I really um, am thrilled with the colleagues I have here at the university. So it's the whole way of life. You know, the, the fact that, that you get paid for thinking, you get paid for teaching, I would do all of those for free. The only thing I wouldn't do for free is go to committees, <laughs> meetings, which my dean knows about already, anyway. So, um, uh, but so, it's a, so I, I enjoy just the whole, the whole experience. Um, I enjoy um, you know, reading about new things. Um, when, I, when I teach, I get to learn more than the students. I like, to, like tomorrow, I'm, teach, I'm teaching about nuclear um, reactors in, in an upper division honors class, and I get to read a little bit more about the natural nuclear reactor that happened in Gabon um, about uh, one and a half, two billion years ago. I mean, you'll, you'll learn about things that um, you know, spur your interest and, and you, you have a lot of intellectual freedom. That's, that's, that's nice, um, at least in the academic setting. But in terms of science, um, you know, I'm a son of a university professor, so I kind of grew up in that kind of culture, mm -hmm. so it's not new, but I'm only one of seven kids and the only one who went into science this way. Um, so it came fairly natural, but at the same time, um, I've taken my own path. I think that, but I think you know, being able to go out and understand why the sunsets are red and why the sky is blue and why soap bubbles have nice colors on, in them and, and um, being able to understand, you know, pretty much you know, everything you read in the paper about science and have an informed idea about how things are going, um, being able to contribute to the knowledge that might be helpful to um, undo climate change, all of these things. I mean, it's, it's part of, it's just one way of being human, but it's, it's one that, that has a certain amount of structure to it, and you have a community of scientists that share your your ethos. So it, you have kind of a instant group of people that you can interact with. That's nice too. And do you have a particular field of study within physics? I've traveled around in physics a bit. I've I've worked in. I've got my PhD in plasma physics, the physics of high temperature ionized gases, and was working in basic plasma physics for the most part. I've moved into various other areas like uh, planetary formation. Uh, nanotechnology, the physics of time, as you know, and also the foundations of thermodynamics, which is my main interest. What are, what are the basic thermodynamic laws, and are there exceptions, particularly to the second law of thermodynamics, which, in a, which is interesting in the sense that it undergirds the direction of time itself. And by participating in programs like this, where you're taking something that's pop entertainment and kind of putting it in a context for an audience, what do you hope to gain by that, or what do you hope the audience will come away from with? I didn't hope to gain anything by it. I mean, <clears throat> I just did it because someone asked. I mean, it's, it's, if someone asks me to do something, if I have time, I'll usually do it if I don't have something really pressing to do. Um, in, terms of the, in terms of the audience, I mean, things like the matrix, is, is, the, the physics is not particularly good, but the fact that it's raising awareness about um, and questions about the nature of reality, I think, is so fundamental that um, it can't help but, but, but have probably some good come out of it. Do you want to know what it is? The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church. 
when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Offering is the truth, nothing more. You know, knowing thyself, you know, and that means knowing the world too. I think, is is what it means to be human. And I think, the way the the world is gone now, that we can, we can be insulated from it pretty much as much as we want. We can live in a cocoon where we don't have to feel the coldness um, of the winters or the heat of the summer because we're in an air conditioned house. We don't have to. Um, uh, deal with, with people directly. We can deal with them on Skype or by telephone. We can avoid contact with people and simply play video games all day. We are cr constructing our own matrix, in a sense. So to, to question that, I think, is important. Uh, we, we are going in a place where human beings have never gone before as a society, and it's not clear to me it's where it's going, whether that's going to be beneficial in the end, any more than being seduced by the matrix may seem good, but in the end, you're, you're a slave to it. So I think it's important. So if you could choose like any film or a couple of films <laughs> to share with people and say like these are films that really either get science right or that give you a window into science that you think is good. Are, are there a couple of films you might mention? Well, um, I, don't, I don't know right off the top of my head. I mean, I think I mentioned the ones, some of the ones I like best, like Blade Runner in 2001, which I think are iconic. I don't think you guys had money for the Interstellar, but on the other hand, I, I think that's too recent to look at. But that, that has some interesting physics in it as well, which actually came up in class today when we were talking about t uh, time dilation and gravitational fields. So I think you can teach a lot of physics through film if it's done fairly well. And Interstellar was done well in many ways, not always, but many ways. In terms of one particular film, Hard to say. I think ones that are, ones that are important in certain times aren't important in others. I think something like Day After Tomorrow, the physics is not all that great, and, and but it also has an interesting message that we need to pay attention mm -hmm. before it's, before you have some sort of you know some sort of flip in in um, in uh, in the climate, which in, in principle I, I suppose is possible, where you could flip into another mode of of, um, of ocean circulation or atmospheric circulation, which could really carry us a long way away from, from the, something we're used to. The world's always been different. I mean, it's, I think it's, um, it's difficult. I think it's unfair, in a sense, for people to say, well, we're, we're going to go back to the good old days. There, are, there were no good old days. There were just old days. When people say, you know, 
Um, you can never step into the same stream twice. You can never st step into the st same stream once. I mean, it's because it's always different. And um, so you know, science has a way, how should I put this? Science gives us tools to make our lives better, but in the end it won't save us. It's the humanities that are going to save us. It's the ability to understand the human heart, to understand our motivations, to be compassionate to other people. Um, the things that are, that are humanistic are the things that ultimately matter. Science is just a means to an end. It's not an end of itself. And I think it's been, it's been deified, glorified in a way which I think is unhealthy in that respect. There needs to be better balance. And I think the movies have a way of doing that in the sense they bring the human element to bear. And um, so that's one of the reasons I do like science fiction movies. I mean, after all, if you take something like Blade Runner, physics is not particularly good. You know, even the biology is second rate, maybe. But, but again, it goes to the very question of mm -hmm. what it means to be human. And in the end, I think scientists yearn for that as much as anyone. Like I said, physics is just philosophy with mathematics. You can dress up philosophical ideas with math, but in the end, they're still philosophical ideas. And the most important of those are what's the nature of the universe, what's the nature of reality, who are, who are we, what is consciousness, all these basic philosophical questions. And those interest me, and as a scientist, I'd like to put numbers on them. Well, and I think the best science fiction is always the ones in which it is the humanity that's focused on less, more so than the science aspect of the story. It's like, how does science affect humans and the way they live as opposed to just the science itself? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, most science, I mean, the science like uh, science fiction that you see like in Star Wars is 1950s mm -hmm. variety. It's just gosh, wow kind of stuff. <laughs> Um, there's a little bit of human element in it, but it's about lots of explosions and sound in space, which of course is impossible, and rumbling death stars, and again, impossible in space, and all these violations of all, all sorts of physical laws. But what people remember about it is, is you know, is, is you know, Princess Leia and, and, and Han Solo and, and Luke Skywalker and the human aspects of that, certainly. But I think the really good science, science fiction like uh, Ursula Le Guin and so on, those, those blend. Um, science and humanity very well and have a and have more of a literary touch that's that's the best kind of science fiction and do you ever tackle science or lack of science in comic book movies I just saw Infinity War so there's the whole reality stone which can change <laughs> everything and uh, so that's a very kind of comic book take on it yeah I, I'm not a big fan of um, of super um, superhero movies just because they're so outrageous the laws of physics are, are infinitely violated you know, terribly <laughs> violated there and if you have an alternate universe where you simply make up a bunch of rules of your own making about what people can do and can't do, I don't find that very interesting because it, it, it doesn't have plausibility. I think the best, mm -hmm. some of the best science has, um, has a measure of, of plausibility to it. Because I, and, but I think if, so when you go to that realm, it's more fantasy, which mm -hmm. is okay. If, um, but um, I think science is rich enough that you can stay close to it um, and still have wondrous things happen. But among the super super um, hero movies, um, Wonder Woman was my favorite. I think, yeah, that that one had a nice human element to it. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time, and I look forward to hearing how you're going to present the Matrix. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how you edit this. <laughs> that was Daniel Sheehan, physics professor at University of San Diego. Our last scientist is new to the film series, Brian Shotwell, who teaches physics at UC San Diego. Shotwell gets to present what is probably the best known and most popular of the films, Back to the Future. Here's the trailer. Mom, is that you? I don't know. 
horrible nightmare. Dream that I went back in time. It was terrible. Well, safe and sound now, back in good old 1955. 1955? Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? I'm from the future. I came here in a time machine that you invented. It worked! Now I need your help to get back to the year 1985. I finally invent something that works! You must not see anybody or talk to anybody. Anything you do can have serious repercussions on future events. Do you understand? Yeah, well, I might have sort of bumped into my parents. Great Scott! Isn't he a dreamboat? This is more serious than I thought. Doc, are you trying to tell me that my mother has got the hots for me? Precisely. Brian, you are new to this real science film series that the NAT is sponsoring. So give us a little introduction to yourself. What kind of a scientist are you? I... Got into science probably because of movies in high school. One movie that stands out is The Matrix, and that certainly has the sort of cult-like camp following that a lot of the movies that real science does. I was just fascinated by science fiction, the physics involved. Uh, later, I got into Star Wars. I wasn't into it for, uh, you know as a kid like most people, but later on, yeah, I really got into it. You know, that was the fun side of physics, and I was also very much interested in the math part of it, so I did theoretical particle physics when I was a grad student. The research was a little tedious. I I like teaching more, and so now I'm going back to the movies, the fun aspects of the science. So this podcast is for people who love movies, not necessarily for people who love science. So explain to people what what does a physicist do what do you study or what is it about uh, you know people probably have in their heads you know what maybe a biologist does or a chemist but a physicist is a little more like unclear to some people <laughs> it, physicists are similar to biologists and chemists in that we want to construct models of how the world works and we want to be able to explain phenomenon already seen and be able to explain new phenomenon uh, whereas they're concerned with coming up with new drugs that will help the human body. Uh, Physicists want to, eventually the goal is to create new technology, but we need to make progress in fundamental research in order to get to that point. A lot of the quantum mechanics studied in the early 1900s led to transistors, which led to computers. There was no way of knowing what the study of quantum mechanics was going to lead to. It was just fundamental research and interest. You know, we do it because it's fun, not because <laughs> there are any practical applications. Uh, but there tend to be practical applications dozens of years, hundreds of years after the fact. The film you have chosen is Back to the Future, which probably in the film series is the most widely known and most easily accessible of the films. And it brings up some notions of time travel. And you've got the crazy character played by Christopher Lloyd of the uh, Doc Brown. What attracted you to picking this particular film? I was choosing a lot of movies that you had to think a lot about. It was just a lot of work. And this one was unique in that it was just a fun movie. And But the more I thought about it, the more physics I realized was involved in the movie. I saw it at a very young age. I wasn't really thinking a lot of the physics in the film. But really, it you know they got a lot of it right. Or at least they, they have some words <laughs> thrown around in the movie. It's a fun way of introducing a lot of physics topics like time travel. But, I, you know, I also, one of the most memorable parts of the film is uh, Doc Brown, you know, Christopher Lloyd, saying 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> but I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 gigawatts! 
which I've never pronounced <laughs> without being, you know, an ironic tribute to the to the film in that way. But I get to talk about energy and power in addition to time travel. I get to talk about the Mr. Fusion at the end of the film. There are a couple of things that the I would have liked to see done better in the film when it comes to physics. Some things when it comes to the clock tower scene come to mind. I don't know if you remember the car stalling when Marty McFly is supposed to get up, get it up to 88 miles an hour to go back to the future <laughs> in the climactic scene. But the, the car wouldn't start. And so, you know, there, were, there was about a 10 to 15 second delay. And that would have had much worse consequences in real life. <laughs> so it's the, mon- it's the mundane part of the film that, <laughs> that the physics, uh, that part kind of dragged me crazy. <laughs> Here you have kind of your classic mad scientist in in Christopher Lloyd. What does a character like that do in terms of, does a character like that have the ability to inspire people to real science? Watching the film as a kid is very different from watching it nowadays. You know, I see humor in that character now, whereas as a kid, it was just the stereotypical scientist character. You know, he is a very lovable character. And so I think it, 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 it does and... It doesn't make science intimidating. You know, he, he's a very serious character, but at the end of the day, he has Marty McFly's interests at, at hand in addition to being interested in the, the time travel aspect of it all. Yeah, I think the, the characters make it fun and approachable. Well, what I've always found appealing about the kind of the mad scientist characters in science fiction is they generally have a real passion for something. And even though the results may not necessarily be the best, I, I feel like there's a spark in there that can inspire people to, uh, to at least think that, hey, maybe anything is possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I definitely got that sense from Doc Brown. And yeah, I agree that other mad scientists in other movies inspire that sort of passion and interest. You know, this is something to be interested about. What do you think it is about the notion of time travel that so fascinates humans? Uh, You know, because it's not just contemporary science fiction that deals with it, but you can go back to H.G. Wells and literature where this notion of can we go back in time and change something? I think about it pretty often, actually. And as a kid, I did. I, I often wished I could go back in time and change some aspect of something that happened to me. I, I definitely think about that a lot more than going to the future <laughs> and only to the future, right? You want to be able to modify some things in the past or replay, relive, relive some aspect of your life. I think that's, that's definitely focused on in a lot of time travel films. Uh, it's interesting from a scientific viewpoint because that's, that leads to all sorts of problems with causality, you know, all these paradoxes that can arise. You can actually... What's interesting in, in physics is that you can go forward in time in some sense. One example of this is I, I could have a twin brother leave the Earth, come back, and have aged not as much as my twin brother who remained on the Earth. So in that sense, the, the world would be in the future, but it, it wouldn't violate any sort of causality. You can't you know go back in time and kill your grandfather is one of the canonical examples. But I think it's fun to, to imagine the possibilities in a world where you could go back in time. I think that, that that's the widespread appeal. <laughs> Are there any other time travel films that have appealed to you or that you think tackle the subject in a good way? One that I saw that did it in a pretty... It's difficult to use the word rigorous because it's not obviously it's not real time travel. But one there's one movie called Primer 
that's a confusing film. <laughs> I mean, I've seen it multiple times and I still don't understand it. Uh, but I, I love the way that one, the movie, I can't even call it a movie. It's a film. <laughs> it's very cerebral. You, it's a movie where you sit down and think about time travel. One, I love how the process of scientific discovery was undergone in that film or displayed in that film. I mean, it was very much some guys working in their garage and accidentally discovered time travel. And it was done in a way that it probably would be discovered in real life. Soon enough, they want to go back in time and use stock market returns to make a lot of money. Uh, another thing that the movie did really well is unintended consequences of time travel. One thing about Back to the Future is it, it, it plays out very nicely in that, you know, they can go back in time and perfectly correct something that went wrong <laughs> and everything goes back to normal. And that would not happen. All sorts of chaotic unintended consequences would probably happen if you were able to modify time. Uh, and that's explored in Primer in a very interesting way, I think. Watching film, science fiction films or films about scientists, is there something that in particular that ever bugs you about what they consistently get wrong or something that you really feel like, oh, why did they do that again? Things in space, it, movies have gotten better about this, actually. But movies in space used to always have explosions in space and that sort of thing, whereas there would be no sound in space. <laughs> uh, some movies get it right and use it to their advantage. And sometimes it can be haunting the, the lack of sound when all this chaos is going on in space. I feel like I, I don't watch science fiction films as much as a physicist should, or most most physicists do. <laughs> and I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to think about whether that's because they irk me so much that I don't watch them. <laughs> Or, uh, or for some other reason. Is that a more recent trend? Because you said movies kind of inspired you into science. Did you watch science fiction a lot more as a child? I got into it late. You know, I was late in the game. Things like Star Wars, I didn't watch till, until later. Really, it was things like watching my dad watch Star Trek. You know, it was, a lot of the themes were just too sophisticated, I think, for, for a six-year-old, eight-year-old. <laughs> and by presenting Back to the Future to an audience who may not be made up of scientists, what do you hope an audience might come away from after you kind of put that film in a context? I plan on talking about energy. Uh, you know, the 1.21 gigawatts is a power, but it related to energy. So I want to talk about that and Mr. Fusion, get a, get a sense of how big these numbers are, and uh, just a general appreciation for the, the fact that the numbers mean something and correspond to some, some amount of energy, which is useful in everyday life. Of course, time, yeah, that and time travel are the, the main points I want to hit at. And, you know, what, what's, what could be done with time travel and what can't be done with time travel, as we understand it, uh, I think it's just fun to think about. So practical and just fun aspects of the science involved. So you mentioned that you do tend to contemplate the notion of time travel. If you had the ability to get the financing or whatever you needed <laughs> to do whatever kind of research you do, what kind of time travel most interests you in terms of some sort of practical application of it? Oh, so we have to, we're restricted to the real world now. No, we can't, no. so no back in time, only. No, no, all right. <laughs> I take that back. If you could do anything. If I could do anything, okay. Let's open the doors. Uh, there used to be a TV show, actually, that I loved called Sliders, where they had the, uh, uh, they had the ability to go through, it wasn't exactly through time, it was to different worlds, but it, it seemed similar because a lot of times it was a world that was similar to ours. Uh, and I really loved the exploration aspect of the show. I mean, they just wanted to see what different worlds were like. And so for me, it would be going back in time and just seeing what different periods were like. Not really from a historical interest, but just curiosity. You know, what, what did they understand about the world? 
Uh, I'd love to go back and, you know, give them some information about the way we understand the world now and see how they react. You know, I'd probably get killed pretty quickly, <laughs> so I'd have to avoid that. Uh, going forward in time would be interesting as well, assuming you don't go far enough that mankind has ceased to exist anymore. <laughs> but I imagine that technology is going to progress pretty pretty quickly, uh, and that seeing what's what's going on, yeah, would be very interesting as well. Well, you mentioned the causal effects of things and, you know, one notion that comes up in, in kind of science fiction scenarios or, you know, what people think of is like, oh, if you could travel back in time, would you change some major historic thing in the hopes of creating a better future? Would you take Hitler out? Before? I used to play a video game, which was based on that premise. Mm -hmm. It was called Command and Conquer Red Alert, <laughs> where Einstein went back and killed... Hitler, I believe, preventing World War II. But what happened was that Stalin became the sort of the Axis power leader. Uh, and so there was inevitably another World War II. <laughs> so I think things like that might happen, you, you know, with, again, this, the, this comes back to, you know, the causality, but the, the chaotic nature of, of causality. You know, you're going to prevent one tragedy. Of course, yeah, you should, <laughs> preventing the Holocaust, it would be a wonderful thing to do. I would imagine other things would take its place, you know, the, to try to avoid World War II, you might have to keep going back and fixing one more thing. more and more people, I guess, or, you know, doing, yeah, fixing one thing after another. I feel like that would be an endless thing. Uh, maybe I'm too selfish to do that. Maybe I should be <laughs> devoting my life to doing that. <laughs> you said you are now teaching and that you enjoyed that aspect of science. What is it about teaching science that you enjoy and, and, that interaction with students? I tutored in college. I suppose that was that was the first time I taught. And uh, at first, it was just nice for me to understand the material. But uh, I think if you ask most instructors, I think uh, some of the best experiences are those aha moments where, where students get it. Uh, and just seeing students not be as intimidated because most of my students come in and they're terrified of the course, you know, what they've heard from other people. <laughs> But to get them to relax and actually go through the thought process of solving a problem and being okay with that and having their thought process gel, having the, the physics problem-solving approach gel with their common sense of the world. Because really that's what we're trying to get students to do is to have what we're teaching from the textbook be common sense. And for a lot of students, they're just totally disparate areas of their mind. So anytime you see... Students say, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Duh. You know, how could I have thought differently? Uh, that's always a special thing to see. And uh, we want to have those moments with more and more. All right. Well, I look forward to what your presentation is going to be like. And uh, we'll see you at Back to the Future. Thank you. was Brian Shotwell, who teaches physics at UC San Diego. He kicks off the Real Science film series on May 4th with Back to the Future at the Digital Gym Cinema. The series then alternates between Digital Gym and the San Diego Natural History Museum every Friday in May. Thanks for listening to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Thanks to everyone who's left a review on iTunes. That's a huge help in getting the podcast in front of more people. Coming up will be a focus on LGBT cinema as Film Out San Diego celebrates its 20th anniversary. 
and a discussion of witches and witchcraft in film. So, till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.